Welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Just to let you know, you can find this podcast on its host site, mormondiscussionpodcast.org. If you're a premium subscriber, that's the only place you can access the premium episodes. You have to sign in with your username and password and then click premium episodes. You can also find the podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher. And please leave a review at those sites if you listen there. The higher the review, the further up the list the podcast moves in being accessible to other people who have not heard of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Also, support the podcast by becoming a premium subscriber today or visiting the bookstore to purchase books that will help you in your faith transition. Thank you. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Margaret Placentra Johnston, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on your show. No, no problem at all. I'm grateful to have you on the podcast today and, and welcome you. I, uh, I'll give you a moment to share kind of a brief, uh, biography or bio of yourself. But before you do that, I just want to say we've got Margaret on today. She's the author of Faith Beyond Belief, stories of good people who left their church behind. Uh, I found the book to be fantastic. My listeners are going to be very aware of the, the kind of topics that you're covering that we'll delve into today. But this whole idea of a faith journey and our, our faith transitioning to a point where it maybe doesn't fit very well in the community of faith that we're, that we're in. But as you point out that that doesn't have to mean that we have to lose uh, faith altogether. And, and I can't wait to kind of dive into this, but before we get started, would you mind just sharing a few, uh, maybe a brief uh, paragraph or so about who you are and, and uh, how you got into the line of work that you're in. Okay, well, thank you, Bill. I'm actually in several lines of work, and it'd be a very long story, but to make things very short, I am by trade an optometrist and eye doctor. I have absolutely loved my career. I've been doing this for over 30 years. Um, but at some point, um, going on a little over 10 years ago, I had sold my practice, and, and I was just working um, on contracts, so I did not have management responsibilities anymore. And I started to, and my children had just gone off to college, and so I was, you know, had a little free time and free mental energy and whatnot. And I, I suddenly, um, not suddenly, but I, I started honing in on this concept of why in the world do we have um, people from that literal level of religion being so vociferous, they're so, they make so much noise, um, you know, in politics and, and in the world and just in our media. And, and, and it's like, I had studied all these stages before. I don't know how much your listeners know about the stages, but I kept saying, why don't people recognize that that's not who should be leading? These people are leading us backward, not forward. So I started to think someone should really, um, write a book. That explains the stages in a way that the average person on the street would understand them. And I kept thinking someone should, someone really should. And then it was, oh no, don't tell me it's me. <laughs> so I realized over time that, you know, I have the time, I have the energy, I have the understanding and I have the drive. And okay, I suppose it's my responsibility. This is uh, a calling of sorts. So I set about learning how to write a book and then how to publish, get a book published. And it took me many years. Long story short, my book came out in 2012. So I first thought of this concept. It was um, 2004, so it was just about 10 years ago. Um, and, and the book came out in 2012. So um, and now I'm straddling being an optometrist uh, as my day job part-time and you know putting out this message uh, in my other time. Uh, and my message is that I'm trying to help people get an idea of what it would be to move beyond this literal level of belief because 
I don't think people want to leave faith behind, but I do think time has come where a lot of our beliefs are outmoded. A lot of religious beliefs are outmoded. And so if you can find a way to faith, that's why the title of the book is Faith Beyond Belief. Um, I thank my publisher for insisting I use that word, that title, instead of one I had planned. Um, but the point is, if you could get people to understand that there is a type of faith that's not based on that literal level of belief, and that that type of faith is actually, um, I'm going to steal this from your uh, what's on your website, but that type of faith that goes beyond belief is much more beautiful and much more expansive than that literal divisive provincial level of only my religion is right. Yeah, yeah, and I find that to be beautiful. And I, I, as I thought about the book, you mentioned just now in your opening comments that you wrote the book kind of as a layman's book so that the average person on the street could understand these stages of faith and, and this journey of a faith transition. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I know I have on this podcast every week, I have authors and scholars and historians and, and I, always talk about the work that they're doing, but I can't recommend enough as we kind of get started here. Uh, my listeners are going to find themselves right in the middle of this journey that you talk about. And, and so maybe just a word out to the listeners of, I don't usually come on here and say, you have to have this book, but I'm going to do that today. This book is just amazing. And uh, for anybody who's going through a faith transition, plus, especially those that are difficult and what we would call that dark night of the soul, I just think this book is going to be such a giant help. And the other thing too, Margaret, is... Sometimes we're in this, in our certain faith community. So for instance, I'm a Mormon and people around me that I'm helping, they're Mormons. And we have other Latter-day Saints who are offering thoughts on how we get through this faith transition softly. And sometimes it's kind of like not being able to see the, the forest from the trees and having you as a, as a non-Mormon write a book, which just, I think very much speaks to the issue. I think it's good to get this outside perspective to see that, that it's not just something that's happening within Mormonism, but this is something that's happening uh, within religion at large at the present moment. Well, yes. And apparently it's been happening for a long time, not just the present moment, but I think it's happening to more of people because of our cultural changes. When people lived in a, you know, a provincial society where the only people they met were people who have the same culture and had the same beliefs, there was very little stimulation to think outside of that box. But we all of us, at least in this country, are living in a world where um, we get global news without even trying. We can turn on internet and talk to someone from anywhere in the world. We have co-workers who are not of our religion, not even of our same race, not even of our same thought pattern. And so we're constantly rubbing up against people with different beliefs, conflicting with what we were taught. And it's very easy to just run up into, um, they call it an issue of um, uh, uh, cognitive dissonance. What we were taught just doesn't seem to fit anymore. You, you think of a sudden reason why your religion might not be working. Um, I, I like to use an example from my book, one of the four stories of people moving beyond the belief stage. Um, and this is a Catholic example, but just to show you how universal this concept is, um, this is the story of Kevin, who is a um, was a Catholic, brought up Catholic, although he was of Indian descent, and he's a veterinarian in Canada, and he does not mind my using his real name. <clears throat> so he um, came; he was very involved in his church, and they were going to. And he was a very good friend of a, of a priest, the parish priest, and they were going to. The parishioners wanted to have a blessing of the pets in the church and um, the priest was very much against this and Kevin was in there <clears throat> trying to lobby for this blessing of the pets and the priest said he, he was taking exception because he said because animals don't have a soul 
And and poor Kevin, he's very tied into animals. Again, he's a veterinarian. And he said, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean animals don't have a soul? And he just could not reconcile that. You know, he thought, look, I know about evolution. I'm a scientist. I've studied all this. And how are you going to tell me that animals don't have a soul? You know, if man has a soul, when did he get it if, if it didn't come through evolution from animals? So that one little issue of cognitive dissonance over time just kind of was like a domino effect and just crumbled all of his belief, his entire belief system, and he wound up uh, being a non-believer. So we can't help in our in our very diverse world running into issues like that when we were taught something very that's very culturally uh, determined. You know, all of our belief systems are very culturally determined, and um, we are now have nothing but mixing in with different cultures, and therefore these culturally determined beliefs are becoming, you know, almost obsolete. So the point being, the stages show us a way to a much more, as you say, beautiful and much more expensive type of faith. It does not depend on these literal um, beliefs that are, you know, a little bit hard to swallow some of them. Yeah. And you mentioned, I, I tried to throw out there that this is happening on a large scale, I think, to some extent today, because of what you point out, we have interactions with people who fall outside of our assumptions and expectations of what they should be like. And with the internet and the access to information, we begin to see what other people believe and begin to see that maybe in some way our beliefs need to be open to examination. But you also mentioned that this is also an old concept. And I did find it interesting, maybe just as a note to listeners, that you you made a, uh, a comment in the book about a St. Teresa of Evola. And I mean, she's already talking kind of about these transitions of faith as early as the 1500s, which which I find to be fascinating that there's that early on this kind of a discussion. You I, you made me nervous at first when your book came uh, in the mail and I opened it up and I opened up to the very uh, first story of Valerie. Uh, I was a little nervous because you start off with a Mormon and and she loses belief in her community and she walks away from it. And I thought, oh no, this is going to be a book about how everybody should leave their church and uh, and lose faith. But I hung in there. I got past the first uh, four stories and moved into what the heart of your book was. You you use those four stories to essentially set up that, hey, here's one way that some people are handling this cognitive dissonance. And yet you then take the book and say, but there's another way to do this that allows for us to hang on to our faith. Um, maybe in a sense, uh, Valerie, I think, speaks will speak to most Latter-day Saints because, one, obviously she's a Mormon, but, two, it's this idea that within Mormonism, and just to be frank, it's a very rigid structure. We have a lot of truth claims that we throw out there that are ba- based on historical uh, facets, and sometimes those things are very complex. They don't match up very well, and there's this tendency uh, to either let it all go, and, th- and there's really a hesitancy to be willing to kind of take it apart and put it back together and hang in there. Any thoughts from you on the the four stories you started off with and what makes those individuals different from the people you speak of throughout the rest of the book who found other ways to kind of hang on to something? Okay, well, for your listeners who have not read the book, the first four stories are of people moving into what I call the rational stage or people moving beyond that belief stage where they believe everything and accept everything that they were taught about the religion in a literal sense. We call that the faithful stage. And the next, the first four stories are people moving from faithful stage to the rational stage. And that's these people going through issues of cognitive dissonance. So Valerie, um, her she has a number of problems with her faith, but one of them, she wasn't getting that 
uh, feeling in her heart from the Holy Spirit. I'm not very clear, um, but um, the, where the Holy Spirit would give her that warm feeling in her heart about whether an issue was true, and she wasn't getting that, and that's kind of part of what led her away. Yeah. And then yeah. um, there was Kevin, who you know started with the issue about animals and having a soul, and then he started asking questions about all sorts of other issues in the Catholic faith, and, and that kind of fell apart. And then there's the next ex-Muslim, and then there's another ex-Catholic. So those four stories are people just, all they did was they came up against an issue that didn't make sense of what they were taught, and they dropped, you know, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying this against those people. They're all people who are obviously trying very hard to live in the truth as far as they understood it. But all four of these people kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater and said, okay, I'm done with religion because this, that, and the other teachings that I was taught don't make sense. This is a form of growth. They actually had come to realize that what what they felt within them was actually more true than what people from the outside were telling them. So they're moving toward um, a more evolved type of spirituality, but they haven't quite gotten the whole way. The next six stories, and, and this is a very nebulous concept, and it's very, very hard to nail down, especially when the next six stories, each one is about a different faith, a person who, who had a different type of faith. Um, but these are people who, had, at some point in their life, struggled through that rational stage that all those people in the first four stories did, and yet they somehow came out on the other side not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They found a way toward a, a faith, it made sense, you know, it honored their rational thoughts and their rational problems with the literal level that they were taught, but they came to a type of spirituality that was more expansive and, again, like you say, more beautiful, um, more inclusive is, is the way I would say it. These are people who realize that we have to think beyond our literal and provincial religion and start thinking bigger, um, <clears throat> start thinking more, um, appreciating the connections amongst all of us, not just people of our own religion. Yeah. And you know, you talk about these other six stories that you share. I, I want to obviously save a bunch of this for the listeners who end up getting the book and I don't want to go over everything, but I did want to talk about just two stories briefly. One, one maybe at a little bit bigger length and the other one kind of as a, uh, as just making a note of some of the comments that you make both in the introduction and the end um, of that story. But the first one I wanted to talk about was David and, uh, and let me just kind of turn there for just a second. But, um, I found this story to be just one that I kind of hung on to and was really, really enjoyed reading about. And I think it's important to note, as you mentioned, each of these six stories are different people. They're from different faiths. But the commonalities in these six stories are very easy to pick up. I think you did a wonderful job of of helping us to kind of pick those out and realize what it is that these people have that others who never really think deeply about the ins and outs of their faith or those who perhaps begin to do so and then completely walk away, what the difference is. And I, and I like how you point out too that we're not judging those who, who stop short of putting it back together again. I think everybody's journey is valid, but in some way, right? The, the goal is to help people to land as softly as possible and to, and to at least explore the opportunity to put things back together if that can be done. Um, in, uh, in David's story, there's a there's a quote here, and I, I wrote with big letters on the side of the page, I put view of the church, and he put, the church feels much like a family. Just as in a family, we don't always agree with everyone's beliefs, but the ties that draw us together are strong. I enjoy the fellowship, the opportunities for community service, and compassionate support. It feels very different from the Roman Catholic Church of my youth. Unlike many people in my congregation, I view all sacred holy books as metaphorical. 
sort of like Aesop's fables, but on a grander scale. I have been able to participate in this church at many levels, including teaching Sunday school, because I am never forced to go against my beliefs. Many Christians claim that the most important teaching is that Jesus is our Savior and he died for our sins. I do not accept that in a literal sense. In fact, I'm not really sure Jesus actually ever lived. But I have always felt that Christianity holds a message far more important than its theology. And I love that. And then he he goes on, he says, the message attributed to Jesus in the Gospels radically changed the way we think about compassion towards others, both friend and enemy. When I listen to or read religious text or listen to a sermon, I look for the moral in the story. I find excellent life lessons contained in the Gospels and take those lessons as their main message, as opposed to reliance on the literal meanings. I am sure that is why a lot of these stories were included in the Bible in the first place. And then he finishes up this section. He says, in talking with my children and in teaching Sunday school, I've always, I always ask, how can you apply this story in your life? Does it have a lesson you can use for yourself? The lessons I try to point out revolve around the virtues of compassion and service. For example, after telling the story of Noah and the ark, I ask them, do you really think this is a true story about all the species of animals in the world getting on a boat in the Middle East in a storm that lasted 40 days? Or is it a story about doing what is right even when people are trying to humiliate you and the task is very difficult? I wonder if this approach may not trigger some interesting discussions at these kids' homes. And and I applaud him, right? But on the same end, I'm sure there are some parents who would not be very happy with him asking questions that way. And, And I'll ask the question this way. If if we're going to compare this to Fowler stages, for instance, and stage four, which is kind of that turbulent stage of really beginning to take things apart, I'm kind of in the midst of that. And most of my listeners, I think, are in the midst of that. And we find it tough. We see people like this. I'll give you an example. We just had uh, on a on a Reddit discussion board a member of our church. He's a scholar. He's a philosopher. His name's Adam Miller. And he did a Ask Me Anything uh, yesterday on Reddit, which essentially anybody can go on the board and ask him any question they want to, and and he'll answer you know every question that's thrown at him. And so I go on yesterday and I say this: I say, knowing that both a local flood has a serious issue in terms of historicity of the restoration in the biblical narrative, and a global flood also has serious issues of feasibility. How do you reconcile such things without throwing your hands up and tossing in the towel in this narrative? And his answer. It's profound, but it also befuddles me. He says, good question. I guess I don't consider it a big deal one way or the other with respect to the things that matter to me. How do, how do people like me get to a place where we can begin to say, oh, you know, the details really aren't important. What's important is that, you know, life is improved by this community and by this faith around me. You know, Bill, I surely wish I had an answer to that. Um, (laughs) I, I, um, I lament that people aren't led let's call it forward, towards this more expansive type of faith, in the way that David, in the example you just read from one of my stories, um, in the way he does with his Sunday school people, um, they, they, he tells them, you know, let's look at this story from the Bible and see what other use we can make out of it. How does this apply in our lives? And do you think this is literal? And, and is the literal part important? Um, and I think that the more you're able to see that larger type of faith, the more you understand that the literal uh, understandings are not that important. In fact, David goes as far as to say he's not sure Jesus ever lived. I doubt there are very many Christians who would go that far, but he, he right. may be right. 
the message is what's important. It's the values. Um, it's not about the beliefs. You know, did he did he turn uh, you know the miracles that are in the Bible? Did he actually was it actually happen, or are those just you know urban legends? Um, <clears throat> that's not important. It's the more important is the uh, the message. And to I can I don't consider myself at these upper levels either. I just feel like I'm sort of a a person who was um, privileged to be able to explain it to because I think the people that are too far on that mystic level faith that more beautiful and more expansive faith I think they lose touch with how they could explain it to people at the other levels and I who seem to be stuck between the rational and the mystic level felt like I can translate it better yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. And, and I think too, you know, I, I listened to this, you know, like this Adam Miller I just spoke of where he, you know, he essentially says good question, but I guess I don't consider it a big deal one way or the other to, with respect to the things that matter to me. He's essentially in that same place where it's like, you know, whether this is historical or not is unimportant. And people like me, and again, this is going to be the majority of the listeners, they feel like at this plateau that they're at within this faith transition that the truth of whether something really occurred or didn't occur does matter. And I think this is why the book is so handy is it shows us people who are one step further ahead in this transition. And it allows us kind of to almost like in the old cartoons where you, you put the stick on the, on the, on the rabbit's head with the carrot out front. It gives us something to kind of aim for and work, work towards and realize that this isn't the end all be all of this journey. That it's not a matter, like you say, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and calling it quits. But that there are these positive uh, experiences, these positive role models who exhibit this type of faith that is that is a faith that has pressed through this this tough time. I uh, I want to ask you. You talked earlier about each of us have our own truth and, and kind of respecting those in that first four stories. David uh, hits on this as well. Um, he says, I'm convinced that the lessons I learned are for me the truth. Whether this truth came through a conversation with the creator or a hallucination is irrelevant. And I find that to be exciting as well throughout these stories. And there are several mentions. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about was Charles. And Charles also talks about living his own truth. And I've had people in my own life who have said, what is your truth? Live your own truth. What, what are your thoughts, I guess, on the different faith communities and what they hold up as truth versus trying to both stay in that community as well as hold on to your own truth as well. Right. Well, I think you just probably hit the nail on the head as to why traditional religions have been tragically um, discouraging people moving forward in, in this type of a process. Um, I think they're afraid, the traditional religions are afraid that if people go exploring, they're going to jump from this religion to that religion and you know, they'll lose followers. But um, in truth, I feel, and I'm not a theologian, but I feel that if you had guided people forward in the way um, David does with his Sunday school class, telling, inviting them to explore the questions, the, the people who came out on the other side would be stronger and they would be much more um, beneficial to as members of the congregation because they would understand if, if someone else in the congregation is questioning, they would be able to um, help them. And also they would be more contributory. So just to make a really sweeping generalization, people at that faithful, literal level generally tend to exist in their religious communities. It's kind of like, what's in it for me? How am I going to be saved? You know, how am I going to be saved? That's why I belong to this religion. But 
people on the other side are more like, what can I contribute? I'm here because I want to give. You know, and again, this is a sweeping generalization. And in fact, no one is at any one of these levels. We're all some mix of all of them. But to, to make a sweeping generalization, it's on the other side, in that mystic level, it's more like, what can I contribute? They're more interested in contributing to a positive and beautiful world right now in this experience, and they're not so concerned. Um, it's not even important to them whether they're gonna, whether there's everlasting life. You know, I know you as a Mormon might disagree with me, but um, they're, they're not as concerned about that. They're more like, how can I make the best impact and move things forward in this world? So they're, if they join a religious community, they're there to contribute. It's not to secure their own salvation in some other afterlife. No, and, and I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, I certainly hold a particular view that I'm hopeful that there is a life hereafter and I'm hopeful that it is at least along some lines, at least parts of the truth that my religious community has, has taught me, but I certainly validate others and they're coming to a different conclusion and completely respect that and see that as a viable option as well. You, um, in the, in the chapter 10 where you talk about Charles, you make an observation in the the intro to that uh, section where you say that six-year-old Charles, because the story is about him kind of as a kid, very early on, realizing that that he had less than a, a literal belief in these things. You said six-year-old Charles was able to see past the faithful level myths of religious authorities, something many adults never do. And as I've studied Fowler and, and Perry scheme, and um, I think the other guy's name is Kurt Garden, there's you know several of these theorists who have come up with these kinds of stages we transition through and to a T they they each say that the majority of us don't get to these later stages where we kind of enter follower stage four or you know and even many of them don't get to follower stage five and yet here's this six-year-old who's already kind of grasping at this what do you think is the difference between those who never question their belief system, because it's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of even experience, I think, at times. What, what is the, the key ingredient that gets people to kind of explore their boundaries and step outside their, the box? That, Bill, is such a mystery. I wish I had an answer, but I would throw out a few possibilities. The people who, um, grasp the most tightly to that faithful, literal level, um, and don't shoot me for this, but the people who grasp most tightly are mostly more fear-based than um, than others. And a lot of them, if you look carefully, have had very chaotic upbringings. Um, their parents were alcoholic or, you know, missing father and family or whatever it is. There was um, <clears throat> something in their upbringing that was chaotic, and therefore they grasp very tightly to that literal level because without that, their life is in chaos. They're afraid of going back toward the chaos they experienced as a youth. Right. That's one thing. Um, it's fear versus trust. And I think the more you move forward in the stages, the more you develop trust. <clears throat> trust that even that even when bad things happen to you, that there's there's a connecting reason for this. And your story isn't the whole story. You know, it's just your little story. And the whole story of the universe is much bigger, you know, and you can go through personal difficulties without, you know, being desperately unhappy about it. Um, so developing trust is one thing, but I do think it's a matter of experience. If you live in a world, if you live in, like, let's go back hundreds of years before we had telecommunications and tra global travel. If you lived in a little community and everyone believed everything exactly the same as you did and nobody even knew hardly there was another world out there, how, what are the chances of you moving forward and, and, and um, being exposed to any other ideas? So chances are you would just live out your religion in a very faithful, literal way. But 
you know, I don't think we have an excuse for that anymore as the world is getting smaller and our, we communicate with people of all different worlds. I think we're called to challenge ourselves to a, a broader worldview. And again, these stages lead us to what we call a universal worldview. And, and so um, just to answer something you didn't ask, um, it, these, one way to look at this type of spiritual growth is to understand that pre-religious people, people who have never um, grasped the tenets of their religion or, or the values of their religion are pre-religious and they tend to be egocentric. In other words, their world is all about me. Just that, That's all that's important to them. At the next level, at that faithful level, they tend to be, we call it ethnocentric. In other words, they believe my group is more important than everyone else. So I will do anything for people in my group. And, you know, my group is right and everyone else is wrong. And yep. So the next group, the fa- the rational level, the people who have gone through that questioning stage or, or in that questioning stage, they tend to um, take on a broader worldview and that they include pretty much all humans. Again, these are sweeping generalizations. But these are the people who are more into social justice and equality and human rights and things like that because they, they don't want the poor and the oppressed to be left out. They want to include everyone. So they have a broader worldview. But that mystic level, the person takes on an even more broad worldview, and, and we can call it a universal worldview, where they include every everything in the universe, not just humans, but animals and ecology, and even they include the spirit world, which is something the rational world does not include. The rational world is like, okay, it's whatever I can see and hear now, that's what the truth is. But the people at that mystic level include the questions. They like to live in the mystery, and they find it beautiful that they don't understand everything, and you know things happen, forms of connection are, exist that we can't actually, uh, don't belong to what we call the consensus reality. You know, there are things that happen in their world that are spiritual connection and not everybody else can see and hear the same spiritual connection. So they are more universal. And universal, they are utterly inclusive, so they include everyone and everything in their level of concern. So that's, you know, in a really simple nutshell, what spiritual growth is, moving towards unity. Gotcha, gotcha. And I appreciate that. And I I know you kind of hit on this word mystic through kind of from the middle of the book on where you're kind of talking about this idea that this is this place that we, if we work through all of this, this is where we can kind of arrive at. And it's, it's a whole new way of seeing things. And I th- I think as I, you know, shared that answer from Adam Miller uh, earlier on the flood, that he kind of has that kind of an approach in chapter 14, you have a section titled doubt versus certainty and I want to read, and I'm not, usually in most of my interviews, I don't read big portions of the book, but I found this to just, my my listeners are going to hear this and they're going to go, amen. Um, doubt versus certainty. A crucial trait distinguishing mystics is their approach to doubt. A faithful individual needs simple, immutable answers about the reason for her existence and about what happens after death. The faithful, rational stages are both very confident stages. The former is confident in tradition. The latter is confident in the self and in the findings of science. At these levels, certainty, especially religious certainty, holds the person's world together. Both the faithful and the rational stage person needs certainty about being right. This need causes him to view everyone who believes differently as wrong, which you just spoke about a little bit ago. The the rational person may feel superior to those at the pre-critical level and think them foolish for for their essentially their naiveness. He may write brilliant manifestos against religion and the existence of God, like our new atheist authors Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchings. And then you and then 
you wrote this. You said, at the mystic level, though, something new takes hold. The need for certainty is replaced by an ability to live in the questions. Rather than grasp at ready-made answers handed down by others as the faithful do, and rather than insist that those answers are false as the rational do, the mystics reject self-satisfied certainty on matters about which we can have no definitive answers. Again, this is, this is, was Adam Miller's approach. Mystics are people who have known doubt, have faced it without fear, and have grown as a direct result of that courage. And then you say, skipping down a paragraph, you say, whereas at prior levels, the unknown was something to be either feared and avoided or reasoned out of existence, at the mystic level, the unknown begins to look enticing. And I can speak for myself and many of the listeners who have written to the program who have shared their thoughts with me. Many of us are kind of beginning to enter this stage where the questions become exciting and the fact that there's contradiction on both sides of an issue begins to kind of get our blood pumping and make make the discussion interesting and kind of pushes us to delve into these things even further. I wanted to ask you how you personally, you, you mentioned earlier that you're not really, you don't really consider yourself at this mystic stage. You see yourself as kind of being somewhere short of that still. How have you kind of navigated doubt and certainty within uh, your religious community? So um, I was brought up Catholic and I fell right into that rational trap in college where um, we were taught to question everything. I, I did go to the Catholic University of America, so I was quite surprised to find that studying theology, they had many, many required theology classes, and all of them encouraged us to question. And this was in the 70s, so I think it was before these stages had become very obvious, before Fowler had done his, had published his works. So um, I fell right into that trap and reasoned myself right out of belief. And, and I was actually very happy that way. I felt very freed from the, the uh, guilt of, you know, the Catholic religion and the, the, the fear, you know, fear of the devil and things like that. So I didn't see any reason for anything else, for needing any type of spiritual connection. But once I started reading about these stages, and again, the first one that I encountered, the first book I encountered about these stages was came up quite by surprise. It was a book by M. Scott Peck called The Different Drum, where he outlaid, laid out these stages. And I was just flabbergasted because he laid out four stages, and I found that I was at the third out of four. And at the fourth stage, people had returned to religion. Um, I think he used the term people at stage four will, will uh, return to religion in order to embrace the mystery. And I was just so blown away by that. I was like, what mystery is there? Well, that happened in early 90s, in the early 1990s, and I think it took me 20 years to um, figure out. Um, you know, I, I started reading more of these theorists, and, um, you know, 20 years of just letting this gel in my mind um, <clears throat> that uh, I, I now find that, that worldview so beautiful, uh, and I understand it very inherently, and I guess I do have some sense of spiritual connection, but I'm hesitant to say that I would be at that mystic level, um, although I intellectually and emotionally I completely uh, jive with what they're saying. So I, I don't actually belong to a specific religious community. I'm a member of the uh, Ethical Society, which they're pretty much rational level uh, group. <clears throat> but still, I, I find beauty in engaging the questions and apparently my my particular path is that my question the mystery that i'm looking for is how do we change you know how do we allow our society to uh, incorporate this type of faith where it's so explicitly but where it, our, our society is so 
It's just they're not explicit in our society. So apparently my path is to try to um, <clears throat> question, you know, how can we how can we deal with this? Because faithful level religion, as I see it, is not likely to work for very long um, in, in the society we live in of global communications and all types of interactions with other people. You can't expect the literal level to hold up well. And yet I, I would feel bad, you know, I hate to see all the beauty and connections of all of our beautiful religions thrown away, you know, by the rational level, people saying, ah, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so I, to speak personally where I'm at is difficult other than that my mission seems to be to try to promote this type of faith. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating that that you haven't aligned yourself with the religious community and yet here you are in this book speaking about these issues and you made the mention of the the quote you shared there at the beginning of of essentially that those in this this kind of mystic stage entered back into the religious community to embrace the mystery of it. Um I, I find that just to be beautiful and I I hope that listeners will find that hopeful that there's there's this recognition at some point that, okay, things don't match up. Things don't fit like people taught me that they should and, and that they would. It, it doesn't it doesn't fit together, but that there's still a way to hang on and still find the beauty in it in spite of that. And I, I just find that to be deep and hopeful and appreciate that. I've got one more little section I want to read out of your, out of your book, and, and then I won't read any more, I promise. Um, but the, it's just I found it to be super profound. You have a, uh, a section – uh, in chapter 14, again, where it talks about the universal versus the ethnocentric. And um, I put at the top, I put in big, big letters, I put budding heads. And I think in some regards, right, every religious faith draws lines of what one really should believe to be a faithful, active member of that community. And yet, as you and I are well aware, when we begin to go down the uh, the rabbit hole and begin to think through these things, there's no way we can go back to seeing things the way we did before that there's just that just can't happen and people in the faith community who haven't moved into the stage they don't grasp that they don't they don't understand that one can't go back to believing things as they did before and there's this kind of tension that's there and you kind of hit on this a little bit it says the faithful or traditional religious person goes beyond the self to identify mainly with his own group, he focuses his views and decisions around the opinions and needs of that group, which is certainly a more mature perspective than one centered around the self. To describe the worldview of the faithful, we can use the term ethnocentric, which implies that the person sees her own group as being more deserving than others. So this stance still excludes a lot of people. Faithful level people may gloat over their own salvation or the righteous I'm sorry, or the rightness of their own belief system or political views. This stance, now seen as a matter of course in our society, actually shows a surprisingly scornful indifference to and lack of compassion for the well-being of those outside the group. The only concern for those outsiders is the extent to which they can be brought into the fold or be saved. The faithful have a triumphalist message in which those outside the group cannot be accepted on their own merit. We have the right answer. And if you join us, you will be saved like us. And that's the faith community I find myself in. Mormonism, and I don't know how aware you are of Mormon theology, but Mormonism um, allows for those who are not members of the church when they get to the other side after death to receive the sacraments or ordinances of the gospel. 
And, and so we do what we call baptism for essentially the dead, where somebody stands as proxy for that person and gets baptized on their behalf. So there is this inclusiveness that everyone can make it. But at the same time, culturally, there is very much this, we're the one and true church. We have the, the right plan of salvation. We have the truth. And in a group of, let's say, 150 members who attend on Sunday, maybe some of them are silent and say nothing. But the majority of them are are very comfortable keeping those lines intact. And for the two or three members in every ward, and sometimes less, uh, sometimes it's only one, who are thinking about things this way, there is a lot of tension. And and I would I think that would hold true for a lot of churches, whether it's the Catholic Church, a lot of evangelical churches that that place absolute authority on a a more literal or sometimes absolutely literal interpretation of Scripture. How how does somebody like me, maybe just your thoughts on how someone like me, the, the people that your book was written for, how can they have some level of peace? Because I don't think the tension can ever really go away. Have some level of peace and persist and continue on and and get to a place where they're, I guess, comfortable enough with that tension that they can kind of just survive uh, in their faith community, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, well, first of all, though, I think you're right, the, the same tension exists in all different types of churches, as I believe that these stages also apply to all different people in all different religions. But uh, as far as what people um, on the other side, people at that mystic level can do, um, I, I think, and a lot of them do it, I should say, they use the same terminology as the literal people, and they speak about... <coughs> They, they're just speaking in metaphors, but they are using the same terminology, and it's sort of, it's very hard to even know that they mean something different than the literal level, which I suppose is a good thing because it, it doesn't get, it doesn't make the people at the literal level too nervous. And what it does do, though, is it leaves out all the people who are at the questioning stage, they're like scratching their heads, they don't see, they, they don't, uh, they don't even realize that the people at the mystic level are speaking metaphorically. So you have to listen very carefully to really pick out um, that metaphor. I, I, we mentioned before we started recording that I listened to that Terrell Givens interview you did. And, and I only because I'm knowledgeable about these stages, I'm listening to everything he said. He's speaking about the Lord and this and that. He's speaking metaphorically. <laughs> so he's very, very gifted in that ability to um, speak to both groups. You know, so um, it's quite a gift. And I don't have that gift. I still am very difficult using the word God because I don't like the thought of that judgmental guy in the sky with a beard. And, you know, yes, I know we can accept a God, but not that God. So, um, you know, it just, I, that's why I'm not at that level, by the way. I'm not comfortable with uh, a savior, you know, that type of literal type of thing. Sure. So, sure. so um, you know, as far as what can we do, I, that's, Oh, I'm doing what I can do is just try to reach the people at that rational level and show them, okay, there is something else. Don't close your minds to it. Don't close your hearts to that that more beautiful, more expansive faith. Um, and, and find the, again, to use some of your words, find the beauty that lies underneath the literal teachings that, you're, that those churches are putting out. Um, but it's a terrible mystery to me. What do we do? You know, how, how do we solve this problem? It was um, a few months ago I did a pastor's conference um, for uh, most of them were the Quaker religion, and, and all these pastors were totally aware of this problem. And you know, they had studied in seminary about these stages. They knew, but they just didn't know how to apply it in their congregation. And, and you know, I just 
It's just sad. <laughs> you know, I don't know why this problem has to be so huge. But unless we solve, unless we find a way forward, you know, I feel like we're just going down the path of increasing divisiveness. The believers don't like the non-believers. The non-believers don't like the believers. The people who believe one religion think everybody else is wrong. I mean, for, for the kind of world we live in now, I think we should really move forward towards a more universal, more inclusive understanding. Right, right. Is religions, if they decide to entrench and circle the wagons, all they're going to do is push more people out and become smaller and smaller and have a smaller voice in the world. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I and I like that you picked that up about Terrell Givens. And I picked that up in him as well. And I picked that up in a dozen other um, scholars within the church who try to speak to these same kinds of issues. And I, I see it and I want to get there. But where I'm at now is one of those places where if I go to church on Sunday and somebody says something nonsensical in Sunday school, I'm like shooting my hand up in the air and my face turns red and my ears turn red and I am just frustrated because it's like, I can't believe here we are in 2014 and you just said that. And, uh, and so unfortunately I'm still working through that. But, uh, but I, again, I just, I appreciate, I think you hit on something, which is there is no perfect answer. We just have to, we have to experience life. We have to realize th- what this faith journey is, maybe taking a step back and looking at things like your book and then just set it as a goal and keep working towards it, hoping that it's someday we, that light goes on or, or perhaps it's even just a step by step slow transition. And we just eventually one day wake up and find ourselves having gotten there. Um, but yeah, I think this, this allegorical or metaphorical look, um, at both scripture and theology and church in general, I, I think is the winning solution because of all the Latter-day Saints I know who have worked through a faith transition and had some kind of faith crisis and get back to a place where I see them as being fully participating, fully active, fully faithful members of the faith community. Each of them in their language, I pick up the same thing you do. They're, they're seeing it through a completely different lens than the literal believers see it. Even though, like you point out, they're using almost the same language and it is quite a skill uh, and it comes very natural to them. It's almost like when you arrive at that place, it's part of your, it's just part of your ability to do that. And, uh, and yet I am struggling just to keep quiet in Sunday school for what it's worth. You, um, in the book, you cover so many, t- I just want to mention these topics because again, listeners will recognize these right away. And I think you, you address each of these both in kind of small sections and then also throughout each of the stories. Um, we talked about doubt and certainty, but you also hit on unity and divisiveness, metaphorical versus literal, uh, where one places their authority, acceptance versus despair, forgiveness versus blame, gratitude versus wanting more, community versus solitude, humility versus ego. And so I only mentioned those so that it will pique the listener's interest and they can uh, check out your book and, and see how you address each of these issues and some of the commonalities you saw in the stories that you, you shared of, of, you know, these real people, some of which, like you say in the beginning, ended at a certain kind of stage and just kind of walked away and others who hung in there and put it back together. I did want to ask you, um, maybe just kind of as an ending note, you on page 278, which is the final page in your book, you, and I've got to turn here to it, but you, I think this is just a beautiful quote and I want to ask you to expound on it and, uh, and then I'll, I'll kind of let you go from there and let you get back to your day. And, but, um, you say where the religion of the past was exclusionist 
ethnocentric, judgmental, and triumphalist. The religion of the future will be inclusive, universal, unitive, and accepting. The religion of the future will be love. And I just want to say amen to that and and so, so, so wish that was tomorrow instead of a 100 years from now. But uh, wanted to give you a moment maybe to expound on your thoughts on where we're going and and maybe why we need to get there and why you see that as, as absolutely having to happen. Yes, I too realize that that was somewhat a wishful statement. Um, I will throw in, um, Bill, that I think you are doing your part towards moving things that way with your podcast, and I'm doing my part with my book, and, and Terrell Givens is doing his part. And I think there are a lot of people working on these um, in their own way, and unfortunately, they all use different terminology, and it's very hard to see the commonalities, just like with the theorists that I based my book on. But when you look at the big picture, um, I do think things are moving forward in this direction. I'm by far not the only person saying this, um, and there are people from all different um, uh, backgrounds, people in the spiritual community, people, uh, theologians from Harvard. I mean, all these people are mentioning that. We're moving towards a type of spirituality in general that is not so belief-based. It's much more um, personal, much more experiential, and it doesn't come from the outer authority of, you know, you were taught this and this is what you accept. We're, we're, and people are becoming more inner-determined. And while it sounds like a scary thing, I don't think it is a scary thing. I think it's good because if you trust that basic human nature has goodness in it, then you can allow the outer authority to fall away and, and let people trust inner authority. So um, as they do that, they become more communal, more uh, universal, more unitive, and, and more inclusive. So they don't want to judge people on their lifestyle. They don't want to judge people on their belief system. They want to see themselves as part of a unified human community. And bigger than that, I, I have a hard time finding the words to explain it, but a universal community where it includes you know, care for our environment, care for animals, includes respect for our spiritual connections, even though others can't see the same connections we we see. So, I mean, I, I can't see how we cannot move forward when the world is, you know, we can you can study any religion you want with a few clicks of a mouse on the computer. Um, you definitely live next door to someone or work with someone from different religions. I don't see how you can help unless you are um, shutting yourself down and, and not allowing these connections to affect you i don't see how you can avoid coming up with a broader worldview than the religion you know that if you were taught a literal level of religion you know i don't see how you can help but move beyond that i think we have a responsibility to move beyond that if we're looking for um you know real truth so i hope we're moving to and and frankly all the all the mystics um have used the word you know it's like a you know, the Greek words, for, they have different words for love. Well, when I say the future of uh, religion is love, I'm talking about that agape love, you know, love for everyone and all connection and all people. And it's not the specific, you know, love of my children or, you know, romantic love. So, um, you know, spiritual, an authentic spirituality is universal love. And I hope we are moving forward. Right. So it's a, it's a validating love. It's an empathetic love that that values each person no matter how different they are, whether they're, you know, we're talking gay or straight, uh, Muslim or Christian, uh, atheist or Hindu, black or white. It's just this valuing someone as a human being and valuing their truth and the experiences that they've had. Right. And even take it further, if they're an animal, still valuing their, their value. And if it's a tree, you know? right. <laughs> same right. thing. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, Margaret, where people, can people find your book? So um, definitely all the online outlets, you know, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, some local stores will still carry it, and you can certainly ask any local store to carry it. Again, it's um, faith beyond belief, stories of good people who left their church behind. Uh, a great deal more about the book can be found on my website, faith, um, faithbeyondbelief-book.com. Awesome. And I will tell you, just as a little surprise to you, um, I have a bookstore on my website, um, and in that bookstore is your book already. So uh, so people can pick that up there as well, and that is through Amazon. Um, I will put a link with this episode that also points people back to the Amazon site where they can purchase it, uh, which is the same essentially as being on in the bookstore. There's a um, It helps support the podcast. A small, a small little bit of that sale goes to the podcast as well. And... Um, just to just say thank you, I, I, I of all the so I, I've listened to maybe I'll just end with this thought. I've listened to lots of other podcasts that talk about follower stages of faith, and I've heard other podcasts that talk about faith transitions. I've read articles about Perry's scheme of cognitive and ethical development and how he puts those stages into words. And I've I've seen members of the LDS Church take that same Perry scheme and translate it over to a a rhetoric that Latter-day Saints would widely recognize. I've listened to Terrell Givens and other uh, members of the church who have talked about this topic, and I would put your book at the top of the list as far as helping me to really grasp others and how they've kind of worked through this, even though there still is not that key ingredient that I can say, okay, I'm going to start doing that today and I'll be there tomorrow. Your book helps me to know that there's something ahead that's more beautiful and for me to keep pressing on. I just want to say thank you. Thank you, Bill. I certainly appreciate your sharing that perspective. Um, I'm humbled by your comments. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being on. Again, the, the book Faith Beyond Belief, Stories of Good People Who Left Their Church Behind. Uh, Margaret, thank you so much for, for being on today. Thanks, Bill. It's been a very interesting conversation.
Please stay.